We have spent the last several weeks in the life of Jacob. We've been looking at a very narrow window of his life, predominantly out of Genesis chapter 32 and 33. We're going to be back in Jacob's life in just a minute. We'll make our way to Genesis chapter 35, but on the way, we're going to take a pretty extreme detour. And I hope you brought a Bible with you for this detour. If you came today thinking, boy, I hope the preacher doesn't do a lot of Bible study, you are about to be hotly disappointed. We are going to do a lot of Bible study. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one in the chair racks in front of you, beside you, behind you. Grab a Bible so that you can see these things for yourself. Now, if you're in Genesis 35 already, make sure that you stick a marker there, but then go to the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms, turn back to the left, one book, and you will be in the book of Job. This is an often talked about book. Job's life gets discussed on a regular basis, but the book does not get studied the way it should. I can't say that it's a small book in the Old Testament. It's not. It's 42 chapters long, yet it gets overlooked regularly, and that's a shame. I want us to get into it this morning, and I'm going to show you all kinds of different things, but before we do, I have to clear up just a few things for you. The authorship of this book has been widely debated. There's a number of people that believe that Moses wrote it. In fact, those scholars would tell you that Job is the oldest book of the Bible, predating even the writing of Genesis. There's good reason to believe that Moses is the author, yet people can't say emphatically that he's the one who wrote it. So there's another group of scholars that would say that Job himself wrote it. It bears his name, therefore he was the author. There's some problems with that idea. Predominantly this one. The book itself records the events of Job's death. It would be a bit difficult for Job to have written those things down after he was gone. So then there's another group of people that say one of Job's friends wrote the book. We really have no idea. At the end of the day, we just don't know who the author is. But there is a group of people, learned scholars, much smarter than I am, that have figured out the dating of the book, when it was written. And some of those scholars, a lot of those scholars, would tell you that Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And most of the folks in that camp would tell you that Job was a contemporary of Jacob, the man that we've been studying. Now here's the cool part if that is true. That means that while God was leading Jacob through everything that he was leading him through, the things that we have studied for the past several weeks, he was also watching over what was happening in Job's life which means that God is not bound by space or time or one particular situation. And we know that because of the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. God is everywhere. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you believe that God is not watching, involved, nor caring about your life, you just remember that while Job was dealing with everything he was dealing with, Jacob was dealing with everything he was dealing with, and God was with both of them. That is a great reminder. It really is. Now, I was going to start out by telling you Job's story. And then I realized I could just mess that up. Without thinking about it, I could mess that up. So I'm going to let the Bible introduce you to this wonderful man of the Old Testament. We're in Job chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. 
There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now that's the man. That's who Job is. That's his character, his personality. He was an upright man in the eyes of the Lord. No question about it. He was an upright man in the eyes of all of society. That's who Job was. The fact that he was offering burnt offerings before the giving of the law is really an intricate part of the dating of this book. But we're not going to get into that. I just want you to understand who Job is. Now the next section that we're going to read introduces an event in his life. This event was brought about by his greatest enemy and our greatest enemy. Pick up with me in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Did you catch what just happened? God just gave Satan permission. He just gave him permission to touch Job's life. He moved the hedge, the boundary of protection out and allowed the enemy within it. He said all that he has with the exception of his life, his health is now available to you. You do to him what you will. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What we are about to read is arguably the worst day of Job's life. You'll understand why. Pick up with me in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another 
and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now listen to what Job does. Terrible day. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now that's a bad day. If you ever believe that you're having a bad day, you just open to Job chapter 1. I'm willing to bet that you're going to feel better by the end of it. Job had a terrible day, yet he worshipped God. Listen again to what he said, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was his heart. That was his attitude. That's how he approached that. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Here I am. Nothing I can do about it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know that my character is that strong. I don't know that that is within my heart. God would have to place it there. And He does. God's mercies are new every morning and God's grace is given to us when we need it the most. But just to think about it right here, right now, I'm not sure my character is that strong. Day two is not much better. God moves the boundary once again in Job's life and He allows Satan now access to Job's health, to his body. He inflicts him, Satan does, with boils and sores all over his body. Listen to what the Bible says about it. Verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now that's bad. That is bad. In the next verse... Job's wife seems to lose track of her senses. Listen to what she says. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It can't get much worse than this. Right here, right now. His wife, the person that should be supporting him more than anyone, the helpmate that was given to him says, Put an end to this. Curse God and die. Things cannot get much worse. This is what the Bible says about Job, verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Chapter 2 goes on to tell us that directly following this interchange, he has three friends that show up, and they bring a running conversation to Job. It would have been a lot better if they'd have brought a casserole to him and then shut up and gone home. But they didn't. They stayed and had a conversation, an interchange with him that really was not good. Let me just show you a little bit of how it works. We are about to speed through a lot of Scripture, so you're going to have to turn fast with me. I just really want you to get the sense of how all of this goes. Job starts the whole thing out. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. In chapter 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, He had a few thoughts for Job. 
He goes on all the way until chapter 6 when Job replies again. Verse 1, Then Job answered and said... See the conversation as it's building? Job will continue talking all the way through chapter 6 and chapter 7 to chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said... Here's another voice joining into the conversation... Bildad the Shuhite will go on for one chapter. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Then Job answered. Job's still in the conversation. He's still there. This conversation will go on all the way to chapter 23. The third friend will chime in as well. He'll become a part of the ongoing running commentary. In chapter 23, Job will take the mic and he'll give quite the discourse. He'll lay some things out until we get to chapter 34 when a new friend, a fourth friend shows up. His name is Elihu. Elihu will start to rebuke the first three friends and in the process, even Job will get rebuked. And then something really interesting happens. Chapter 38. Before we get there, I want you to go to chapter 37 look all the way through it, and get to the break between chapter 37 and chapter 38. In that break, this is dramatic. Now, you're going to have to look close in order to see this. You've really got to dial in. It happens right between chapter 37 and chapter 38. If you have a Bible in front of you, look at that space, that white space right between them. Here's what happens. God clears his throat. That's it. Now, you may not see that in writing, but trust me, that's what happens. Here's what we hear happening between chapter 37 and 38. God from heaven goes, just like that. And then he says, you boys done? If you're finished now, I've got a few things to say. Are you done? That's, That's implied. Trust me, that's not in the original languages. That's implied. God is there right now saying, that's enough. Now, you're going to listen to me. And listen to how he sets the stage. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Could you imagine hearing God say that? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. You've gone on all this time with your friends and you've spewed all of this half-knowledge and half-wisdom. You've argued back and forth. You've done all these different things with one another. Well, now it's my turn. Dress yourself like a man. You dress for action because i got a few things to say. And God did. For the next two chapters, God spoke to Job. In the process, He put him up against the ropes. Job had very little to offer. Want to know how I know that? Go with me to chapter 40, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. Look at what happens. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, if you really want to understand what Job just said, it needs to be visual. This is what Job did. I've been going on and on and on. God, I'm so sorry. I will put my hand over my mouth. Not another word's going to come out, Lord. I've spewed and I've said all these different things. Now I, 
Drivers had nothing. And he covers his mouth. He had nothing else to offer. So God speaks again. And then in chapter 42, Job gets the stage for just a brief moment. Verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 4. I really like this because you've got to remember all the way back in chapter 38 how God told him to brace himself like a man, to dress himself for action like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Look at how Job twisted just a little bit. This is so significant. Verse 4. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what Job says to God. Okay, I'm through talking, Lord. Now I'm, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. And I'll accept the answers because remember, my hand is over my mouth. I don't have anything else to say. Verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I love verse 5. Man, the depth of what is there is so extreme. Listen again. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. A lot of people have begged the question, rightly so, why would God allow this in Job's life? Well, when we trust the sovereignty and the power and the protection and the person of God, that question can be asked, but we have to accept that we may not get the answer. The best answer that we can find is this. Because God knew the end of the story. That's why God allowed it. He knew the end of the story. And the end of the story is significant. Here it is again. Job would say to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Do you know what he's really saying? Up until this point, God, I had nothing but a surface relationship with you, but now I see you. Now I know you. Now I have relationship with you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now I see you. That's a shift. That's a change. That's a dramatic change. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now I see you. That's the impact of this. And all of that was happening supposedly, according to the scholars, at the exact same time that Jacob was wrestling with God at the fords of the Jabbok, while he was on the banks of the river wrestling with God, so was Job. Because God is watching over everybody. God is watching over all of His children and He is accomplishing great things in everyone's life that opens themselves up to Him. So now we have Job at this point saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now, but now, but now it's different. I see you. I think Jacob could have said the exact same thing. They just had different terminology. Jacob could have said the same thing. Think about this for just a second. Jacob had heard of God by the hearing of his ears. He grew up in Isaac's home. Isaac was a scholarly man, an intellectual man, a man of God, one of the patriarchs. Isaac was Abraham's son. 
So Isaac, his father, was able to tell him of all of the covenant agreements with Abraham, the protections of Abraham. Isaac was able to tell his sons all about what it was like to go up on the mountain and to offer himself as a sacrifice through his father. And then God provides the ram. He had heard of him by the hearing of his ears. But it didn't really penetrate. And then he he went out in his own way and did his own thing. And then Jacob, through a wrestling match on the banks of the Jabbok River, found a relationship with God that he had never had before. He had heard of Him by the hearing of his ears, but he had never seen God personally, but now he has. Just like Job, he has seen God personally. In modern terminology, this whole thing could sound just like this. When I was young, my grandma took me to church. I went to Sunday school. My mom made sure we were in Sunday school. But then I went and did my own thing. Somebody else might say, I went to VBS. The bus came around, picked all of us up for vacation Bible school. I went to VBS as a kid. But when I got into high school, I went and did my own thing. And it's been decades since I've been with God. That's the same as saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears. That's the exact same idea. What we pray for, what we hope for, is that people will get to a place where they're able to say, but now I see you. Now I have relationship with you. I am below the surface, into the depths of who you are. Now I see you. For me, that happened when I was 10 years old. I can look around this room and I see a myriad of stories. First service, packed crowd. A myriad of stories in there as well as we talk about what it means to move from simply hearing about God to knowing God, seeing God, and knowing God. It happens in people's lives in a number of different ways because every story of relationship with God is unique unto itself, but still it has the same similarities. For Job, he would say, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now, but now I see you. Jacob would boil it down this way. He would use a name for God that showed us his new relationship. Jacob discovered El Shaddai. Let's go to Genesis 35. While you're on your way there, let me give you just a little bit of background so that it sets this up. There's a number of different names for God in the Bible. A lot of scholars would tell you that in the Old Testament alone, there are 20 plus different names for God. We don't have enough time to go through every one of those names. It'd be a a little bit mind-boggling even if we did. But each of those different names teaches us something about the person, the character, the nature of who God is. I'll give you just three of them as an example, just so you can understand. Here's the first one. This is one of the Old Testament names of God, Elohim. It means in the English language, Creator God. You don't have to get very far into the Old Testament before you discover this name. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to the book of Genesis together. Genesis chapter 1, you're already in Genesis, just go to chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 1. Now I'm reading this from the English Standard Version of the Bible. When you think we come across Elohim, Creator God, you just stop me. Say, there it is. My permission to interrupt. You just say, there it is. I want you to see how far we have to go before this shows up. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens. There it is. In the beginning, God. And the word for God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is Elohim, Creator God. 
Now that's not a mystery to any of us because we know that in the following verses we're going to learn about the creation of the world. The biblical account, the truth of how the world was created in seven days by the word of God. Elohim, creator God, helps us understand the creative power and nature of who God is. That when he opened his mouth and spoke, light went forth. That's creator God. But you want to know something really cool about it? The word Elohim is a plural word. It is a plural word. It is used to describe the small g gods that surrounded the Hebrew people, but in this application, in its plural plurality or pluralness, there's a word for you, you know what it describes? The triune Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a plural word. And we are only four words into the Old Testament before the Trinity gets introduced to us. At the end of the chapter when mankind is made and Elohim, Creator God, says, let us make man in our image, He is speaking to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is such a cool little detail tucked away in the Bible. Elohim shows us who God is. Elohim gives us this great idea of the wholeness, the fullness of who the Lord is. But there are other names for Him as well, like this one. Take a look. Now, I have to remind you, I am not an expert in the original languages, not at all, but I know a guy. And I had to call my buddy and ask him the pronunciation of this once again. Because in my redneck way of reading things. That looks like Elroy to me. That's exactly how I see that. And so I'm going to read that like Elroy, and that ends up sounding like a giant bag of dog food from Walmart. So I don't want to do that. This is actually Elroy. That's a phonetic way of saying it. Elroy. The I looks like two E's, according to my buddy who knows this inside and out. That's Elroy. It means the God who sees me. And this name for God shows up in the book of Genesis as well. It comes from Hagar's story. Genesis chapter 16 verse 13 reads, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. The God who sees me. Now, when we understand el Roe, the God who sees me, that God is paying attention to what's going on in my life, it becomes very personal to us. It takes us back into the idea that God could be working in Job's life and Jacob's life at the same time, and that allows us to understand that He is working in mine. He is the God who sees me. God is not detached. He is not removed. He is not invisible. He is the God who sees me. I love that name for the Lord. How about this one? Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Now the word Shalom in Hebrew culture, Israeli culture, is a big deal. It really is. It is a word of greeting. People will come up to one another and say Shalom, or when they are leaving, they will say Shalom, meaning peace. But it means a lot more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom in the Hebrew language, Yahweh Shalom, means a complete understanding. To say that we have experienced Yahweh Shalom means that something has happened within us where we are totally okay with whatever happens in our life. Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. It means a lot. The Lord is peace. It means that we have trusted Him. 
And we have experienced something from Him that maybe we had never experienced before. That's shalom. This word, this name, shows up for the first time in the book of Judges in Gideon's life. Judges chapter 6, verse 24 reads, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace, Yahweh shalom. To this day it still stands at Oprah, where, which belongs to the Abazarites. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. I did a funeral yesterday for a fellow that experienced shalom, Yahweh shalom. He had lived most of his life without God, but in the last 11 to 12 months, that changed. The Lord got his attention. There was a wrestling match going on. He passed away on November 11th. His family would tell me early in the week when we were planning the the funeral service that over the last 11, 12 months while he was attending church with us, he discovered peace not only with himself but with God. That is Yahweh Shalom. That is Yahweh Shalom. So we can look at all of these different names and attributes of God that the names bring out for us and that will more than likely leave us in the realm of being able to say, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ears. I know this about you. And certainly Jacob knew all of those different things about who God was. But after his wrestling match, after the time on the Jabbok, And after he faced his brother, when God told him to move into a new land, he discovered something deeper, something much deeper about God. He discovered El Shaddai. This is it right here. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Now let's go to Genesis 35. That was where we intended to arrive today. Took a long time. I hope the detour was satisfying for you. Listen to what happens. Verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bacchus. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aaron and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. I want you to listen to verse 11. If you have your Bible open, look closely. Here it is. And God said to him, I am truly God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Verse 11, one more time. 
And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. When God said, I am God Almighty, he revealed a new name, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. If your Bible is like mine, there's a footnote connotation right after the word Almighty. That means that you need to look down at the bottom of your page, see what the footnote says. In my Bible, it simply says in Hebrew, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Do you know what happens when we discover that? We move from the realm of having heard with the hearing of our ears into the realm of seeing God for who He really is, El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. He reigns over every other small g God that we have in our life. The ones that He told us to never put before Him, they are now below Him. Those gods are starting to fall off the page one by one oftentimes very rapidly because God has become who He should be in our life. Lord God Almighty, He is El Shaddai. It's His place where we're able to say, I see you now for who you are. All those other small g gods that existed in the Hebrew culture were governed by Lord God Almighty. He was the one who held power over them. Lord God Almighty, He's the one of authority. He is the one in a position to do whatever needs to be done in our life. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who has purchased us. He is the one who has saved us. He is Lord God Almighty. And when we understand El Shaddai, we have moved from being able to say that I have heard of you with the hearing of my ears. You're someone, God, that I've heard of to a place where we can say I've seen you. I have seen you with my eyes. I know you and my life is different. When we discover El Shaddai, the story of our life becomes different as well. I want to show you what it looks like. We're almost done. For this, we need to go to the New Testament, the book of Colossians. And I'm going to show you how we see the Lord today, how we discover El Shaddai. The Apostle Paul is going to help us a lot with it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a, became a minister. Now here's a little biblical test for you. Pop quiz. Here it is. Who's Paul talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus himself would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If we want to get to the place where we can say to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I see you, it will require us to see Jesus. That's the way it works in the New Testament. 
That's the way it works for us in Christianity. That's the way God intended it to be. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. If you have come to a place like the Apostle Paul did, where you could say, I may have had my back bowed up for years and years and years and years, and I knew who God was, but now I really want to see Him, so I will look through His Son, then you will have a testimony like Paul did. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is my God. Lord God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. You may want to write El Shaddai in the margin of your Bible in Colossians chapter 1. That's El Shaddai. That's what it looks like for some people to get to the place where that happens is really quite an interesting process. Like this in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. I don't know if this man ever met the Apostle Paul, but if they did, I bet they were friends. And let me tell you why. Because when Paul had his eyes open so that he could see God through Jesus, there were scales that had been placed there by God Himself. And then God removed them. And it was a process. It took a little while before he could see clearly. Same as it was for this man. And that may be your story as well. There's a process going on. And the scales are coming off. But hopefully, prayerfully, you get to a place quickly where you're able to say to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I see you. I've wrestled through whatever I had to wrestle through with you, and the scales have fallen off, and now I see you, and I see clearly. If there is anything that I have come to understand from our study of Jacob's life, even this brief window that we have looked at, to see God clearly, to understand El Shaddai, requires us to let go of some things. To experience El Shaddai and get to a place where we are able to say to the Lord, I'm all in. I trust You with everything. You are Lord God Almighty. It requires us to let go. I like the way John Ortberg captures this idea. Take a look. There is no way to God that bypasses the call to let go. You may have many intellectual doubts and it's really important to be honest about those to talk about them and to study. However, thinking and studying alone never remove the need to choose. The question of faith is never just an intellectual decision. So start with something that Jesus said that you think is true and then do what He says. That's the way we move from hearing about God with the hearing of our ears to seeing Him with our eyes. You have to find something that Jesus said that you believe is true and then do it and trust God to do the rest. And you may say, man, Phil, I, I want to do that. I'm just not sure where to begin. Well, I like this spot. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You start with Jesus as a path to the Father and God will do the rest. And then those other attributes of God that you want desperately to discover, He'll reveal to you one by one. But it begins with being able to say to Jesus, You are Lord God Almighty. 
And you see the Father through the Son. And the Spirit will prompt everything else to happen in God's timing. You let that unfold the way God needs it to. You just find a spot that you can jump in. And you trust God for it. Until you are able to say, I understand now, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. It's a place of belief. Jacob got there. And many, 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 many people have since. Billions of people have since. El Shaddai is a great understanding of who God is. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for all the names that we find for you throughout Scripture. They all teach. I am grateful for this name, El Shaddai, because it allows us to understand relationship. Lord God Almighty covers every aspect of my life. And I am grateful, Lord, that we get to see that through Jesus. We get to experience El Shaddai through your Son. I'm praying right now for those that have not yet experienced that. Lord, would you let the scales fall from their eyes so that they can. In Jesus' name, amen.